I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, The Trade Guys bring you some good news and some bad news. Trade numbers are improving, but really, are they? And the Trump administration is into new tariff fights with Canada and Vietnam. We'll talk about those. Plus, we'll break down new lawsuits from companies like Coca-Cola, Ford, and Disney, and thousands of others over the Trump administration's tariffs. Stay tuned for all that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. So we've got a good trade outlook. Good news. Can it be? Gentlemen, what's going on? Well, it appears to me that we got the base right, as they used to say in business. You know, once you get the expectations low enough, uh, any turnaround does look good. But in fairness, this is a genuine turnaround and ahead of expectations. Now, I think what's going on here, trade flows fell sharply and are above expectation in their rebound now. But what you really have going on is the global economy is gradually getting better. Had a big downturn because of the response to the public health crisis of COVID. A lot of industrial economies basically shut down major components of the economy. But now we're recovering. And what you have going is very accommodative money policies by all the central banks. You have essentially zero interest rates. You've got a lot of fiscal stimulus. And you've got a steady reopening of sectors and areas of the country that were closed. And I think what that all adds to is a recovery in consumer demand, which had cratered early and is back. So what's all the fuss about the WTO upgrading its forecast for trade and goods this year to a level still comparable to the decline during the global financial crisis, but better than initially predicted due to the rebound in June and July? Why do we feel now that this is good news? Well, it's better than expected. Uh, but also, I think this is we're going to have to work through this in terms of our own expectations because we're likely to have this K-shaped recovery where some sectors and some individuals wind up on the upper leg of the letter K and others wind up, this is sort of catastrophic for them. And and, and so the, the economy is going to split. You can see it uh, if you look at sort of air travel and hotels and things like that. The leisure sector has come back. The business sector is very slow. Uh, so airline ticket prices are depressed. The industry is hurting as a whole. Other industries have either come back very well or if for online services are well ahead of a year ago, well ahead of sort of pre-COVID crisis levels. So it's a mixed picture, but it does it is at least hopeful. I mean, the WTO reports on trade, which is their job. And Scott summarized it very well. They don't report on employment. And uh, the area where I think recovery is lagging is on jobs. Uh, and that's not just here, it's, it's everywhere. And if you look at IMF or uh, OECD or Federal Reserve, various forecasts, they've all kind of followed the same trajectory, which was the spring forecasts predicted a very sharp decline for the rest of the year. More recent forecasts in August and September suggest that it's going to be uh, less severe than was projected in the spring, which is reflected in, in the WTO stats. But what every one of them shows is unemployment recovery lagging behind growth in, in GDP recovery. And they're still projecting unemployment in the you know well over 7% range at the end of this year and continuing to decline much slower than growth is going to return. 
So the U.S. posted its largest monthly trade deficit since 2006 in August, as imports of consumer goods recovered to pre-pandemic levels. This is adding to evidence of some kind of a snapback in global trade. Yet we're also seeing a widening of a trade gap. And Scott, as you've said, there's a mixed bag here. But is it a trick bag is what I want to know. What does this all really mean? I can't resist pointing out, before Scott says something intelligent, I'll just point out that the trade deficit in this administration every year has been worse uh, than Obama's last year. And so the guy who came in and said he was going to fix this, and Peter Navarro said the deficit was going to disappear in two years. I'm not one of the people who think the deficit is particularly important, but that's their measure of success. And by their measure of success, they're spectacular failures. Won't they say, though, that COVID changed everything? Well, that doesn't explain 2017, 18, or 19. They'll definitely say something, but I think what you have to look at is the mix. And there is a difference in the kinds of things the United States exports versus what we import. What's recovered in terms of imports are basically consumer purchases, consumer goods, the general shopping basket. That's I think that's good news for the American economy. It's good news for importers. Food imports have recovered as well. We import a lot of processed foods. And so that's good news that people are shopping there. Some of the things we export, though, are what are called generally durable goods or industrial goods. Think about it as aircraft, which nobody's buying at the moment, <laughs> okay? Or orders have been postponed for numerous reasons, but that's an industry because air services is under pressure. Aviation sales are under pressure. Uh, same with factory equipment. We're a leading exporter of machine tools and equipment, the kind of heavy machinery, precision machinery to make other things like tools or components. And industrial goods trade is still somewhat depressed. I think that's hurting it. Uh, there's probably also, we're up against a higher price per barrel of oil for the uh, hydrocarbons exports that are done in the United States. So even if you have an equivalent level of exports of oil and processed hydrocarbon products, if it's trading at a lower price, that'll show up as a... You mean lower price, not higher price. The yeah, other thing is yes. down that intrigues me, Scott, maybe you can comment, is uh, we've all always had a surplus in agriculture exports. That's been declining over the last few years. I think currently, not COVID would be an answer here, but also Chinese, you know, the China tariffs and the Chinese retaliation are a big factor. But it looks like our surplus now is only about a third of what it was at peak uh, in agriculture. Some of that may be seasonal, but also the Wall Street Journal noted a pickup in imports of food products, which tend to be either processed food or fresh fruits and vegetables. And a lot of what we export are commodities, large-scale commodities, soybeans, corn, wheat that are uh, processed elsewhere. So it's a story about consumer demand and consumer demands for processed food, both domestic and imported, and then less demand for the commodity products because of whether it's cyclical or... Uh, sectoral. Well, and that actually reminds me that the big agriculture news this week is that the administration is going after imported blueberries. They've started a 201 safeguard investigation against blueberries. The biggest blueberry importer is Canada. So we're not making that relationship any better. Fourth biggest is, is Mexico. The others, I think, are Chile and Peru. It's, it's a kind of a seasonal vegetable. So we're messing with the Canadians on milk, Aluminum, which I still can't pronounce it the way they pronounce it. Aluminium. Aluminium and blueberryum. 
Well, somehow the, the, the crisis in blueberries escaped me entirely. I guess I'm not a core blueberry consumer here. Are prices too low? What's the problem? What the hell is going on with the Canadians <laughs> and blueberries? I really love blueberries. They're healthy, antioxidants. Everybody likes them. Blueberries never offended anybody. Like, what, what's going on here? Well, it's a 201 case, which means no, they're, they're not being dumped. There's no allegation of unfair trade is what that means. Yeah. It appears to be, it's something the administration initiated. I don't think the industry came in. And it appears to be an outgrowth of this odd debate that's been going on since the USMCA negotiations about seasonal fruits and vegetables. And the blueberries are not really a big Florida crop. Actually, they're a main crop. The Floridians and the Georgians were have been agitating for a long time for special procedures to let them take care of what they believe is the dumping of seasonal pr products, in their case, mostly tomatoes and a few other things. And uh, that got left out of the USMCA agreement. There was a lot of pushback from other parts of the ag community, particularly in the West, where they're adamantly opposed to it and think it would just be a gift to Florida. So it didn't happen. But uh, Florida is another state in the election. And uh, USGR has had hearings and the Floridians and the Georgians came in and said, we need relief from these imported Mexican vegetables. And the administration is trying to respond to that. And the first one they picked was uh, blueberries, even though that's not really a Southern thing, but it addresses Maine. And it allows them to go back to Florida and say, see, you know, we're taking care of your problems one fruit at a time. It's part of the great irony of trade politics is that when it comes to the consumer, seasonality and seasonal differences is why you want trade. Because you want to have blueberries all year round. You want to have fresh fruits and vegetables all year round. And yet the producers tend to see that as a problem of trade. So in the politics tends to be, as Bill pointed out, the intensity is usually on the side of the producers, not the consumers. Mon Dieu, c'est incroyable. <laughs> oh, gosh, guys. All right. So this is throwing me, the blueberry thing here is really throwing me off. But I guess the larger question is, does the widening trade deficit cause you guys to worry? In general, no. And I think we're going to get into both the overall trade deficit and then a specific growing deficit with Vietnam, the bilateral deficits. I don't worry about bilateral deficits at all because I think they're commercially and macroeconomically irrelevant. It really doesn't matter. It's like, I don't know if Maryland has a deficit or surplus with Ohio, but it doesn't matter. All right. So same thing with any bilateral surplus. Uh, the overall deficit in the near term doesn't matter. Uh, in the long run, big imbalances tend to resolve themselves. And that's likely to happen at some point with the U.S., but it hasn't. And uh, we've got a lot of other problems at the moment. So uh, on my list of things to worry about, this is probably number 17. You know, the major deficit between the state of Maryland and the state of Ohio would be the record between Ohio State and University of Maryland. Yeah, there's a there's a football talent gap. Yeah, that, that would be that would be <laughs> the deficit. Although Maryland's doing some pretty good recruiting these days. So, you know, they got a long way to go to reach the top. But you know, if you're gonna start drawing boundaries, then you have to demonstrate that all Ohio State football players are from Ohio. In fact, some very talented ones come from Maryland. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Chase Young, Dwayne Haskins, shall I yep. go on? So Maryland is an exporter of football players is what you're saying. And an exporter of talent to Ohio. The DMV, District Maryland, Virginia, is one of the greatest mm. hotbeds of both football and basketball talent. And I won't even get into swimming where the two greatest swimmers of all time are from the state of Maryland. Michael Phelps, Katie Ledecky, full stop. 
But yeah. this yeah, is not a sports podcast. Despite your so, best efforts. <laughs> despite my best efforts, yeah. But we do have to talk about Vietnam. The Trump administration opened an investigation into Vietnam's trade practices. On Friday, they opened the investigation. And this is a step that could result in tariff man putting tariffs on the country's products and potentially opening a new front in the Trump administration or tariff man's global trade war. Guys, tell me what's going on here with uh, Vietnam. Well, as, as Scott will say, it's hunting where the ducks are. And I yield to him. Yes, look, I mean, one of the reasons that our trade uh, deficit with Vietnam is increasing is because there are tariffs on China. Trade flows are based on what Ricardo called the comparative advantage. And we've imported a lot from Southeast Asia over the last 50 years because of their comparative advantage in producing certain kinds of goods, high labor intensive goods in particular, uh, versus the United States. So th that is something that's a benefit of trade to all consumers and the reason trade flows operate the way they do. The terms of trade before the Trump administration's tariffs on China had favored China as a source of scale manufacturing among these kinds of products. With the tariffs that the administration placed on China, much of that production or some of that production at least shifted from China to Vietnam and therefore the trade flow shifted and not surprisingly, the trade deficit increased with Vietnam. So this is sort of a fairly obvious consequence of US policy in part, but that's not the claim that's being made by the Trump administration. Here there's a claim of currency manipulation and there's a claim of illegal uh, logging or illegal timber products being used in production. So those are the specifics of the complaint. But it shouldn't surprise anyone with a passing understanding of you know, how markets work that the trade deficit with Vietnam is increasing as a direct result of tariffs on Chinese trade. It's like pushing on the balloon. You squeeze here and then it pops up somewhere else. And as USTR Ambassador Lighthizer's reaction to the news of, of record high monthly deficits, which you started off this conversation with, Andrew, was that, well, that may be so, but the deficit with China is down. And the answer is, yeah, the deficit with China is down, but it's up with everybody else. And, you know, net, if you look at the thing globally, even in the face of the, the virus, it's getting worse than ever. So I'm not sure what saying it's down in one country accomplishes. To me, it's ironic because with the case of Vietnam, it's this is a problem of the administration's own making. You know, the deficit with Vietnam is up because people are leaving China and, and producing there. You know, they're leaving China because of the tariffs. So now Vietnam is in the target zone because they're the beneficiary. Scott's right. It, it also raises a novel issue, which is the, the currency manipulation issue, which is not novel. I think the problem is always how do you determine what the correct value of a currency is? Most economists will tell you that the correct value of a currency is whatever the market says it is if, if the currency is, is freely floating. I don't think the Vietnamese currency doesn't float freely. So it floats within a band. You know, they'll probably be able to come up with a number, but it's not necessarily going to be a very realistic one. The Treasury just looked at this in, in the context of a specific case, which was tires, Vietnamese tires allegedly being dumped here. And Treasury concluded that the Vietnamese currency, which is the dong, was undervalued by 4.7%. Yeah, as ranges go, that feels about right. But still, look, the Treasury Department does do this analysis. And they, there are three criteria in their analysis. Do you have a large trade surplus with the United States, something over $20 billion? 
is there a material current account surplus overall for the country? That is 3% or so of GDP. So running a consistent current account surplus and that there's persistent intervention in the currency, something around 2% of GDP, uh, to keep it at its current value. So those are the Treasury's factors. They're at least, for the most, they are specific criteria. Last I checked, Vietnam was two out of three. There's a list of countries who meet two out of three of the conditions, uh, but not three out of three. Vietnam's one of those. So, Do you guys feel like this is legitimate? Don't all jump at once. (laughs) (laughs) I'm inclined to think not particularly. I mean, they may find something, but it's not the biggest reason why we have a rising uh, trade deficit with Vietnam. I, I think the biggest reason is basically overflow from China and and substantial Western investment there. Yes, I, I tend to agree with Bill. Look, Vietnam is growing as an exporter, partly because it's a successful market economy, partly because it's got a lot of investment from outside of Vietnam, including from the United States, to Uh, expand its industrialization program to increase its competitiveness in global markets. And one of the things you get is greater exports. That happened in Japan in the post-war period. It happened in the Asian tigers in the 80s and 90s. It happened in China in the 90s and aughts. So it it shouldn't be surprising at all. We tend to think that is a good thing. Look, uh, I mean, at least I tend to think it's a good thing. The currency manipulation as a subsidy gets into a lot of issues that are way beyond the scope of most trade policy. And so I'm leery of it. We're going to put our toe in the water here and see how it works. I understand the conceptual case, but practically speaking, there's a lot going on in currency that doesn't have anything to do with trade and is not about a specific subsidy to a an export sector, or it's at least very hard to make that case. So we'll see. All right. We'll wait and see on Vietnam. Let's talk about China because we always talk about China. But now we've got a pretty good reason to talk about China because more than 3,500 companies have filed lawsuits against the United States government and tariff man over its tariffs on China in recent weeks. This shows a lot of unhappiness among businesses with tariff man and with tariff man's trade wars. What about it, guys? Well, I think it's a bunch of companies seizing an opportunity that they think was handed to them by the courts. Well, and let's just say what kind of company. This is Coca-Cola, Disney, Ford. These are major. It's a wide variety. But this whole thing began earlier this year in a case involving a different law uh, and a case involving steel tariffs on Turkey under Section 232. But the argument was the same, which is why all these cases have arisen. In that case, the unhappy Americans who were subject to the tariffs, went to court and claimed that the administration had violated the law because it didn't follow the rules. It didn't follow the procedures that were set up in the law for how to impose a tariff. Because in the Turkish case, what happened is the tariff was imposed as a national security measure under Section 232. And months, months later after that, the president raised it higher than it had been because he was mad at the president of Turkey over some other issues. And the plaintiffs argued in court that he couldn't do that, that the law says you get to make one decision one time and you have to stick with that. You can't come back months or a year later uh, and change it. And they won. And that then got people thinking, well, if we can win there, maybe we can win on the China tariffs because the China tariffs occurred in three tranches. It was list one, list two, which was a little bit later, but then list three and list 4A 
We're a year later, a year after the investigation, a year after the president's decision. So all these companies have gone to court saying the president can't do that. He can make one decision one time and you can't come back a year later and do more. The reason they all happen so suddenly is it turns out in this statute, there's a statute of limitations. And if you don't sue two years after this starts, you're locked out. And the two years ran out the third week of September. So all these companies were approached by their lawyers telling them, if you don't file before this date, you're never going to be able to file. And so they filed. Uh, the problem is that the China tariffs were taken under a different law, Section 301, which is not the same as 232. And 301 has a provision that says the president can modify his actions. And I think the administration's defense will be, this is just a modification. Now, the plaintiffs have come back with a whole bunch of tweets that explain that it isn't really a modification. It's because Trump got mad at the Chinese again a year later for something else and decided just to add to it. But from the company standpoint, all they got to lose is their legal fees, you know, and if they win, they get their money back. So they get their tariffs back. So there's a potential big win here. And they were inspired by the Turkish case, even though it's a different law. You have a rush to the courthouse door. That's why there's all these suits all of a sudden. Uh, you get them filed and maybe you win, maybe you lose. But I, I would just observe that in many cases, one of the Achilles heels of the Trump administration has been following administrative procedures precisely enough to satisfy courts. So a lot of their decisions get overturned because of sort of process fouls, footfalls, faults, as it were. Well, thanks to the crack research of trade guy Jack Caporal, we found here that U.S.-based laboratories, a leading manufacturer of coronavirus tests, has also filed a complaint. That can't be good. Well, and they're looking for a sort of change in the couch cushions, and this may be some of it. So <laughs> that's, if they've imported products that suffered from tariffs, which include a lot of medical devices and equipment, there are tariffs on that equipment and the components used to make it. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, well, in their case, also active pharmaceutical ingredients, I suspect, many of which come yeah. from China. But, you know, go, go back to where you started, Andrew. I mean, despite it is rushed to the courthouse door, but it does reflect unhappiness with the tariffs. In fairness, these companies were unhappy when they were imposed, and they've been unhappy ever since. Uh, the thing that changed is they figured out there was something they could do about it. And, you know, we'll see if it works, but it was a way for them to visibly demonstrate their unhappiness and hopefully get some money back. Well, I'm extremely happy to be with you guys. This is our 111th episode. Nice round number. That's good. Really nice number. I can think of no people that I'd rather do 111 episodes with. So thanks, guys. This has been a great discussion. We'll talk again next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.